Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock. Happy Thursday uh, to you and yours. It's the day before Friday. Uh, The weekend's almost here, so uh, we've climbed the mountain and we're on the other side of it. We're headed back hill, back to the the weekend. I'm actually going to spend the weekend, I think, with my mom. Looking forward to that. I haven't seen her since Christmas. Uh, But before we do any of that, I'm going to give you a great show. I hope you enjoyed the last two shows. John Stockton uh, joined us and had some very interesting things to say about basketball, very interesting things to say about his thoughts on COVID. Uh, And as good as John Stockton was, and he was tremendous, today's going to be better. And that's not a shot at John Stockton. It's just a shot like I've cooked up something really special here. The news cycle's been good to us. Uh, Good to us anyway. That may be the wrong word based off of uh, this fire I'm about to start. But anyway, uh, TJ Moe is here in studio with me uh, today and tomorrow. Uh, He'll be here the entire show. Uh, Shamika Michelle, uh, she's going to join us to help me with this fire start. She's going to help me and TJ fan the flames of this fire that I start. And we got a guest uh, coming on uh, from, I believe, New York City, uh, Aaron Sabarium. He's written, he writes with Barry Weiss on a Substack. He's written something tremendous about the legal system. Uh, I'll let him explain, we'll get into that. It, it dovetails with my fire starter. The whole show is actually connected today because we're gonna do some Tennessee Harmony a day late because you know we let John Stockton talk all yesterday. Uh, but uh, today, uh, Pastor Bobby Harrington and Pastor Anthony Walker have agreed to uh, move uh, Harmony back a day so they can continue our discussion. So we're going to talk a lot about the Constitution, the law, the Supreme Court, the legal system, uh, and who, who and TJ and with TJ uh, with Tennessee Harmony uh, sent me a suggestion earlier this week about hey I want to talk about the Constitution with the pastors and have a conversation about uh, God using flawed people to write great documents like the Constitution, like the Bible. And so we'll do that uh, with Tennessee Harmony. But uh, before we do any of that, I need to start this fire, warm you guys up, uh, and prove to you why this is the best podcast uh, going. All right. You don't need to be a biologist to define the word woman. Common sense paired with a commitment to the truth, that'll do the trick. Kadanji Brown, Jackson, Joe Biden's nominee for the Supreme Court, either lacks common sense or veracity. The absence of either should disqualify her from a seat on the Supreme Court. Tuesday evening during Jackson's confirmation hearing, 
Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn asked the nominee about a 1996 Supreme Court ruling that struck down Virginia Military Institute's male-only admissions policy. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the majority opinion, which stated that physical differences between men and women are enduring and that the two sexes are not fungible. Blackburn asked Jackson if she agreed with Ginsburg's assessment of men and women. After a pregnant pause, Jackson responded, Senator, respectfully, I'm not familiar with that particular quote or case, so it's hard for me to comment. Okay, Blackburn eventually pivoted to a simple question. Here's what happened. Uh, can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can I provide a definition? Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. I can't. You can't? N not in okay. this context. So I'm not a biologist. The meaning of the word woman is so unclear and controversial that you can't give me a definition? Senator, in my work as a judge, what I do is I address disputes. If there's a dispute about a definition, People make arguments, and I look at the right. law, and I decide, well, so I'm not... The fact that you can't give me a straight answer about something as fundamental as what a woman is underscores the dangers of the kind of progressive education that we are hearing about. Just last week, an entire generation of young girls watched as our taxpayer-funded institutions permitted a biological man to compete and beat a biological woman in the NCAA swimming championships. What message do you think this sends to girls who aspire to compete and win in sports at the highest levels? Senator, I'm not sure what message that sends. If, if you're asking me about the legal issues related to it, um, those are topics that are being hotly discussed, as you say, and I could come to the court. So listen, I'm going to admit this. I'm not a biologist either. Unlike Jackson, my parents were not college graduates or educators. My dad did not graduate from high school. My mother was a 30-year factory worker. I was never a candidate to attend Harvard, Jackson's alma mater. I graduated from Ball State University with a degree in football, excessive socializing, and a 2.23 grade point average. Shockingly, I can provide a definition of the word woman, adult female person. I can even provide a definition for the word female. A human being born with a vagina, ovaries, uterus, XX chromosomes, and breasts that produce milk for feeding babies and for the enjoyment of men. Those differences, among other things, separate men from women. You don't need a biology degree to know this. These differences have been chronicled in a wide variety of popular magazines and publications, from Playboy, to National Geographic, to the granddaddy of them all, the Bible. God created man and woman. I suspect Katanji Brown Jackson disputes that last statement. 
Disagreement over that statement is what is at the heart of the division tearing this country apart. Who is really in control, God or man? Is truth malleable to the whims of men and women? Jackson does not lack common sense. She can define the word woman. If she can't, she should ask President Biden. He made it clear he picked Jackson because she's a black woman. Jackson's flaw is that her commitment to truth is fungible based on how truth impacts her politics. She's a politician, not a judge, not an arbiter of truth. Her particular brand of politics, left wing, requires her to eschew a biblical worldview that values truth above all else. Liberals believe the human mind determines gender. Men and women are their own gods. Our alleged mastery of science and technology makes us masters of the universe. Our thoughts and desires must be liberated, affirmed, normalized, and surgically imposed. We're gods. Gods do not tame their ambitions to be in submission to a higher power. The satanic Thelema occult argues that do what thou wilt shall be the whole law of the whole of the law. America is locked in a battle of competing ideologies centered on the purpose of life. Are we here to pursue a life in accordance with biblical principles and values? Or are we here to find and determine our, our true will? You pen swimmer Leah Thomas believes he is here to find his true will. He wants to be a woman. Twitter activist Sean King wants black skin. Colin Kaepernick wants to be Muhammad Ali. Same-sex attracted men want to get pregnant and bear children. Missouri Senator Josh Hawley thinks Katanji Brown Jackson is a true will advocate, a confederate of activists installing a do without wilt mindset into our culture and legal system. His questions surrounding Jackson's apparent sentencing sympathy toward child pornographers are likely his way of expressing concern that Jackson believes adult attraction to minors is just another sinful desire America should normalize. The Supreme Court interprets the U.S. Constitution. Our founding fathers, despite their flaws, laced the Declaration of Independence and Constitution with biblical principles and values. Thomas Jefferson could provide a definition for the word woman. He knew that slavery was wrong. He wrote founding documents that doomed the institution of American slavery. He did this because he believed his life purpose was to pursue a life in accordance with the biblical principles and values he believed in. He valued the truth, even the truth that damned him. Brown Jackson doesn't value the truth. That makes her unfit for the Supreme Court. She's an activist who will collaborate with activists who want to dismantle the Constitution and write one that favors people in search of their true will. She wants to be on the right side of a history leftist plan to write. The Constitution is written for Americans who want to be on the right side of God. That is my fire. I want to buttress my fire by playing a couple of clips 
from her confirmation hearing and questioning, I, I, I want to start with Josh Hawley questioning her about the light sentence she gave to an 18-year-old young man who was downloading child pornography. Let's start with Josh Hawley's question. You did. Let me ask you about some of the things, though, that you said, because you said this this morning, and I, I appreciated it, how you want to direct the defendants. You want to get them to own up to what they've done in these cases. And I thought that was powerful, and I thought it was right. But let me just ask you about what you said to this defendant. You said to this defendant, for whom you sentenced to only three months in prison, that your collection, I'm quoting you, your collection at the time that you were caught was not actually as large as it seems. Now, the government felt the need to respond to you on the record. They said the government doesn't believe that it's appropriate to just disregard the number of images, that the number of images can be appropriate. And indeed, in this case, the defendant has amassed an extremely large collection of child pornography. But you disregarded that. You also told the defendant, you said this, this seems to be a case where you were fascinated by sexual images involving what were essentially your peers. And then you went on to say the defendant was merely trying to satisfy his curiosity. Curiosity is your word. One more thing on this, same idea. You said you were viewing, this is you to the defendant, you were, you were viewing sex acts between children who were not much younger than you. And this whole discussion is about why you're only giving him three months. Judge, he was 18. These kids are eight. I don't see in what sense they're peers. I've got a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a 16-month-old at home, and I live in fear that they will be exposed to, let alone exploited, in this kind of material. I don't understand you saying to him that they're peers and that, therefore, you were viewing sex acts between children who are not much younger than you and that that's, that's somehow a reason to only give him three months. Help me understand this. So... We're going to play her answer, but I think that's a very fair question. As I said in, in my mono, I get why he's asking the question, because there is a troubling pattern here of her being soft on child pornography. If you watch this show and you've listened to me at all, you know I keep saying this LGBTQIA+, that the plus is about the P word, and the P word is pedophilia and it's silent, the P is silent in the alphabet mafia. But, but before I play her answer, I, I wanna show you, just so the, cause there are people who think the question's unfair and it wasn't in context and it wasn't blah, blah, blah. And so I, I watched the entire exchange, but I'm gonna let someone from either MSNBC or CNN, I can't remember which network it was on, but argue like, hey, the, the question's out of context, it's not fair, and, and you decide, so let's play that clip. So they spent a lot of time on this specific issue of an 18-year-old from Washington who the uh, sentencing guidelines would have called for an eight-year sentence, the prosecutors recommended a two-year sentence, and Judge Jackson imposed a sentence of three months. And so there was some discussion about why she did that. Um, I've looked at the records in this case, and I think, I th apparently Judge Jackson just doesn't recall this case, and that, that's understandable. She had many, many sentencing and something like 500 court decisions. But the specifics in this case suggest that uh, this was a, uh, uh, an 18-year-old who was 
curious about this kind of sexual activity that he sought out. The court records show that a detective, when he realized that this young man was uploading some of this, contacted him and said, how would you like to have real sexual activity with uh, my 12-year-old daughter, which was make-believe, and this young man never responded to him. And there was a psychiatrist who evaluated the young man and said, this was basically his sort of curiosity about a specific kind of sexual activity. He wasn't interested in uh, younger people. He was just sort of curious about this for his own purposes, that he was not a pedophile. So those were the kinds of things, apparently, that Judge Jackson took into account in that specific case that Senator Hawley spent a lot of time on. Those are the mitigating factors. The 18-year-old was smart enough not to respond to an undercover police officer who asked him, did you want to have sex with my 12-year-old daughter? So, I mean, he figured that out. And again, or, or, or maybe, let's jump to the conclusion. Oh, he didn't figure that out. He just didn't respond. Who knows if he even got the message? Were they talking on the phone? Was it an email? Was it, was, or literally, was the guy spidey since he's just smart enough? I'm being set up, I'm not going to respond. And so therefore that invalidates Josh Hawley's line of question that some 18 year old looking at child pornography of eight year olds, well, he's just curious. So if, I don't want to make light of it, but, and so I, a lot of times I, I make jokes and I'm doing it to make a point, not to make light of it. But this is the equivalent of seeing me standing outside of McDonald's looking into the window and so <laughs> Jason don't really want a double cheeseburger. He's just window shopping. He doesn't eat at McDonald's. And if I went and asked him if he wanted a double cheeseburger, he'd say no. Th this is insanity. And this, call me QAnon, Whitlock Anon, whatever. But there's a pattern here of the left with this child pornography stuff, with pedophilia. They seem very soft on it. They keep acting like they want to legalize pedophilia. It's just a desire. No different than your desire to have sex with your wife. If it wasn't a natural desire, why would we have it? And again, this is why I keep talking about the difference between a biblical worldview and a secular worldview. I have sinful desires. I'm a Christian to try to combat those sinful desires. Gluttony, sex. I'm trying to get my desires in line with God, or at least my actions. And so I admit that I'm flawed and I'm sinful, and therefore I'm a Christian and I need God's grace and mercy, and I need to follow the concepts, principles, values he set forth in the Bible to slay my sinful desires. The left wants to normalize and embrace sinful desires. And that's why they keep bending over backwards and making excuses for people that 
have boatloads of downloaded child pornography and seem to, uh, again, we made a hero out of that clown that got killed in Kenosha. Uh, Joseph Williams, I think was his name. The convicted pedophile that was anally raping nine and 11 year old boys and suddenly he's a hero. You can, I'm not a conspiracy theory. There are people in this country in power, politically active, who want to redefine pedophilia as normal. And I don't blame Josh Holly for wanting to question this judge about it because she seems soft on child pornography. And then she starts out her deal. She seems soft on being obedient to the truth. She can't define what a woman is. She knows damn well what a woman is. Joe Biden said he picked her because she's a woman. That's why I wish Marsha Blackburn had asked her, hey, babe, can we get, can we do a call a friend segment, a lifeline, and we'll have Joe Biden ask her, answer this question. He can define what a woman, because you're a woman, Miss Brown Jackson. That's why you got nominated. So, in the interest of fairness, we're gonna take these next three minutes and, and let Katanji Brown Jackson answer Josh Hawley's question about why she seems to be soft on child pornography and why she gave this 18 year old boy who's got porn of eight year olds, why she gave him a three month sentence, play the clip. Senator, I don't have the record of that entire case in front of me. What I recall with respect to that case is that unlike the many other child pornography offenders that I had seen as a judge and that I was aware of in my work on the Sentencing Commission, this particular defendant had just graduated from high school. And some of, perhaps not all when you were looking at the records, but some of the materials that he was looking at were older teenagers, were older victims. And the point, Senator, is that you, you said before the probation office is making recommendations and they do so on a case-by-case -case basis. That is what Congress requires. That, it, this is not done at the level of But you had once, discretion, Judge. You admit that, right? I just want to be clear. Senator, sentencing is a discretionary act of a judge. It's not a numbers game. It's not. I, I understand that Congress wanted the guidelines to be mandatory. The Supreme Court in 2005 determined that they couldn't be, in an opinion by Justice Scalia, determined that they couldn't be. And Congress since then has not come back to amend them or to change them or to make them mandatory again. And so there is discretion at sentencing, and when you look at the sentencing statutes, Congress has given the judges not only the discretion to make the decision, but required judges to do so on an individualized basis, taking into account not only the guidelines, but also various factors, including the age of the defendant, 
the circumstances of the defendant, the terrible nature of the crime, the harm to the victims, all of these factors are taken into account and the probation office assists the court in determining what sentence is sufficient but not greater than necessary. And I appreciate, Senator, that you have looked at these from the standpoint of statistics, that you're questioning whether or not I take them seriously or I have some uh, reason to uh, uh, handle them in either a different way than my peers or a different way than other cases. And I assure you that I do not, that if you were to look at the greater body of uh, not only my more than 100 sentences, but also the sentences of other judges in my district and nationwide, you would see a very similar exercise of attempting to do what it is that judges do, attempting to take into account all of the relevant factors and do justice individually in each case. I, I, I just would prefer a judge that values the truth and the protection of young people above all else. Children are defenseless. And, and if you want to be soft on, if you, if you want to let smash and grabs go um, because you think it's the voice of the unheard and their old reparations or whatever, I'm not... I'm bothered by it, but I'm not going to get emotional about it. But mitigating circumstances as, as, as it relates to child pornography, the molestation of kids, we can't put a big bright light around and say this is a no-go zone. This is a, you know, we don't have much tolerance for this. If you accidentally get some child porn, I, someone sent it to you, you downloaded it, you didn't know, but when you have volumes of it and they're involving eight-year-olds and older people, or whatever, I, I just don't have a lot of tolerance for it. I, 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 and I don't understand a judge that would, but I do understand it in the context of what's going on in America. And what's going on in America is we're obsessed with two things skin color and sexual gender identity. And, and they've been paired up, skin color and gender and sexual identity to dramatically change America. Because the only defense of Katanji Brown Jackson on, in this area, not being able to say what a woman is and, and making excuses for child pornography. Oh, she's black. Don't question. And you're racist if you do. How dare you challenge her? She's black. Now, the people that are loyal to this black religion thing don't require her to be loyal to it. She married a white man. She doesn't have to be loyal to black. But we have to be loyal to her because she's black. I do, I'm, I'm not playing that game. If you're not loyal to the truth, I have no use for you. And if you're not committed to protecting young people and kids, innocent kids, I'm just not going to be loyal to you. I'm not going to let your skin color give me, well, I, I'm going to look the other way on that. 
It's in the Bible. God created man and he created woman from the man uh, from the ribs of a man. He created man and woman. This isn't up for debate. This is anybody that's having that debate is an idiot or a liar. Or they have gender dysphoria and I feel sorry for them. I really Leah Thomas. I actually have sympathy that he's having dysphoria. But rational people that we're placing in high places in judgment of our Constitution. They, they got to be clear on man and woman. If they're not, it raises red flags and concerns. And then if you couple it with them being soft on child pornographers, you just start. Well, hold on. This is a do what thou wilt person. This is someone buying into Satanism. I'm sorry if that makes people uncomfortable. But that's the only conclusions that can be reached. Can't, I can't provide, I'm not a biologist. I can't tell you what a man or a woman is. That's a liar. Assaults on truth are an assault on God. And this whole giving in to, let's normalize every desire. That's an assault on God. That's the way I see it. I, I'm, I'm, TJ's here, I'm gonna get his thoughts, but first, because it's a black woman, we're gonna go out to, uh, <laughs> and because Shamika's very smart, uh, we're gonna go out to North Carolina, bring Sh Shamika Michelle in. Uh, I want an expert opinion. Uh, Shamika, I wanna first start with, uh, can you provide a definition of a woman? A woman is an adult female. That's what a woman is. And I, I don't understand why this was so hard for her. Jason, I, I think that liberal white women are the greatest enemy to America and, and black women are, are second. I think that they have produced a generation or generations of burly feminists and beta males. And I cannot believe that as a country that's supposed to be one nation under God, that we can so easily be compared right now to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham pleaded with God when he said he was going to destroy them that if he could just find, he went from 50, I believe, down to 10. If you can find just 10 righteous, will you save the city? He was thinking about the fact that his nephew Lot and his family, they were they lived there. Well, when the angels were sent to, to see what was really going on in the city, they couldn't find at even 10 righteous people in the city. And it bothers me that we have a black woman, a judge who is potentially potentially going to sit on the highest court of the land that has no type of moral 
ground, who has no type of righteous standing with her, that she could not even say a simple, basic definition of what a woman is. And like you said, yes, it's in the Bible, male and female created he them. It's not really that hard. And the fact that you don't have a backbone to, to stand on a simple definition lets me know that we can't really trust you with anything. And since I am on the Bible and we're talking about God creating male and female, let's be reminded that when God gave instruction to Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he gave that instruction to Adam. And when the serpent came, the serpent went to the woman. And the woman is the one that decided to listen to the serpent and then take that fruit back to the man. But when God came, he came to Adam. He called to Adam and said, Adam, what have you done? So I want every man to realize that it's time to really now stand up because when God comes, he's coming to Adam first, even though it was the woman. And to me, the, the left right now is the serpent tricking still the woman. The woman is still being used, Jason, in my opinion, as the tool of destruction. And it is time that we stand up now. I, I know we've talked about whether or not women should have the right to vote or should be leaders. Look at what is happening to our country because of the empathy of women, their inability to have a backbone, their inability to stand on righteousness, their inability to stand on truth, their inability to define logic. This, where we are right now in America, we should all be scared because we have an entire group, I guess almost 80 million people as, as they consider on the left, that's being tricked by the serpent right now. And women are leading that charge. Women have their ear to the serpent's mouth right now. And so before I, transition to TJ and let him join. I, I want to ask a specific question. I don't even know if it's, I don't feel comfortable asking the question, but the show's fearless and I ask whatever comes to my mind. What's going on with us as black people that we will, there's going to be a number of black people defend her because she's black. They will know what she's saying is blasphemous and wrong and illogical and, and any of them that grew up in the church will be like, well, hold, this is just biblically unsound. It, it sounds Satanistic or whatever, but we will defend that out of allegiance to skin color. Why, what, why can't we connect over shared values and over shared perspective and just connect over people that are grounded in truth rather than skin color, because again, I'll just say this, we're showing her an allegiance that she's not showing. And, and again, I'm not criticizing her husband or her choice of husband, but I'm saying we're more committed to skin color than she is. Why? Jason, I think so many black people have made skin color their God. You know, they don't have any other type of um, 
allegiance but skin color. They don't esteem anything but skin color because they have no confidence in anything else. If you don't have confidence in your purpose here in this earth realm, if you don't have confidence in what you can bring to the table as a human in this earth realm, you have to worship something else. If you don't really worship God, you're going to worship something else because you have to, you either worship God or you worship Satan. And when you put any other God before him, you're in error. And that's what we have done with skin color. We have put that God before the actual God. And you're right. People will make excuses for her. They've already started. I had someone in my inbox this morning saying, oh, I understand why she couldn't have an answer to this because then the LGBTQ would come after her and there's so many other groups that would stand against her. Again, it goes back, if God be for me, who can be against me? If you stand on righteousness, if you stand on truth, who cares who come against you? No weapon formed against you will prosper. But the problem is people that claim they have a relationship with God, they really don't. They don't have this understanding that God will protect him or that he is the end all be all. So they have to try to finagle and figure other things out. And people are going to, like you said, make excuses for her when there is no excuse. There is no excuse for what is happening in this country right now. None, except that we are a country full of weak men and women. We're weak. Mm. Uh, TJ, Josh Holly's from Missouri. Uh, he's from the Kansas City side, the good side. Thank God he's not from St. Louis or he'd be like Corey Bush. Uh, <laughs> but do you think his line of questioning to her fair? And do you think, part two, do you think I'm making too much of her refusal uh, to define what a woman is? Part one, I, I love his line of questioning. And I actually, what I, what I noticed when watching that video is he gave her the opportunity to speak. You see so many senators who try to do the gotcha and they say, sorry, I only got a certain allotment of time. I'm gonna cut you off. They're just trying to do their grandstanding. He was legitimately concerned and didn't interrupt her one time. And in fact, when he started to speak, he stepped back several times to allow her because he would have liked to have heard a rational defense and she didn't have one. In fact, I don't think the guy on MSNBC did her any favors either. Uh, so there, there has yet to be a good defense. And if you ever find yourself on the side of try, trying to defend why you're not giving a harsh punishment to a pedophile, you're not on the right side. And so it's it, pretty simple there. The second part, I think, is a little more insidious and deeper. George Orwell, 1984, the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. And so if you've, if you've ever read the book 1984, it is the rewriting of all of history is everything comes from the state. And what she said was what we've been told for the last two years. She said, I'm not a biologist. What she's saying is leave it to the experts. I'm not qualified. You're not qualified either. Let the experts tell us what a boy and girl is. Let us let them tell us what a man and a woman, is. even a even a likely Supreme Court justice wouldn't dare define what a woman is in today's world. This is what we got from Anthony Fauci the last two years. Don't question me. I am science. Remember that line. So 
this, it, it goes down to they're, they're trying to get rid of an objective reality because if you get rid of objective reality, then you get rid of objective morality. And if you get rid of objective morality, then you get to become God, right? If, if, if there is no Bible to say this is obviously right and obviously wrong, you just get a, a group of people together to decide what that is. And their minds just change. And, and that changes by era. What was right and wrong and what they thought in 1850 was a whole lot different than what people think is right and wrong today. And so, by the way, this, this is the thesis of Marxism. I don't know if you've read much about uh, Karl Marx. He is, he is quoted as saying, religion is the opium of the people. And religion is incompatible with communism. They have to get rid of religion in order to bring in communism because communism tries to fill the void of God and everything has to be up to the state. And so, you know, connect the dots here. Oh, I don't know what a woman is. Doesn't matter how qualified, how smart. I don't know. Let the experts decide. They'll tell you everything you need to know. So I think if you can get that from a Supreme Court justice, these are supposed to be the, you know, nine of the most respected people on planet Earth who literally interpret and, and help dictate the law of the world's superpower. If you can get them to play along, who can't you get to play along? One of the things you said, I think, point, th this whole thing of, well, I'm not a biologist, I'm not an expert, and let's leave everything to expert. Again, this is this elitist mentality of like, hey, uh, TJ, Jason Whitlock, Corey, Chris, you guys are just normal people. Leave it to the elites. We, we got an expert for that to tell you, you know what, you think you know what's best for your body, but we got Dr. Fauci, Fauci here. He knows what's best for you. You don't know anything. You're just a normal person. Shut up. And so that's, she's part of that elitist thinking and elitist mentality. The other thing that I think we're in agreement on, and I know we are because we talked before the show, but to have... And she will not be alone in this on the Supreme Court, but this is just another example and a more out of the closet example of someone who, I don't know, maybe she regards herself as a Christian, but I don't know if there's a lot of proof that she's a Christian. And the Constitution, they're interpreting the Constitution, and the Constitution was laced intentionally with biblical principles and values. And so we're basically allowing atheists to interpret a document that is supposed to be an expression of Christian values. That's exactly right. Um, I was reading, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about this on uh, Tennessee Harmony here. I was reading, I was trying to figure out, because I have always been taught, I, you know, I was homeschooled in my early years, then I went to private school, Christian school, and then I went to public school. So I got to experience everything. And in my younger developmental years, I was always taught the United States Constitution is basically a Christian document. But I hadn't spent a lot of time in my adult life actually concluding that for myself and, and confirming it. So I was looking, um, this is on uh, Wall Builders. David Barton has a great website. They do a lot of great work. I know he's been on with, with Glenn Beck. Uh, they, on one of their, they, they go, obviously, a lot of historical constitution stuff. One of the things that he had on his site was a, a study done by Dr. Donald Lutz. He's a, pro, a professor of political science down at Houston. And he did an extensive 10-year study. And what he wanted to do was figure out what, what documents 
the founders relied on to create the framework for the greatest constitution that's ever existed. And so they had 15,000 items that they went, and then they had citations in each of them. And uh, this was between 1716 and 1805. And the, the, of all these, they had thousands of citations. I think in the 15,000 items, they had over 3,000 citations of where the, they got these ideas. 34% of the citations came directly from the Bible. Like this is the most uh, biblically laced document in history. The government was formed directly from the principles of the Bible. Many of them in, in Deuteronomy uh, were... were um, with, you know, the book of God's law. And so the founders, many of which even Ben Franklin, who is, is widely considered one of the least religious founding fathers, he came out after the convention was finished and called it divinely inspired. He said, quote, the new federal constitution being in some degree influenced, guided, and governed by the omnipotent, omnipresent, and beneficent ruler is absolute. Like a... a a quote, non-religious guy, and still by those days standards, much more religious than, than even some of our religious people today. He had m much of the Bible memorized. He came out and said, this is, this is divine. This is inspired by God. Now we're putting people who don't have any of these same beliefs and telling them, hey, interpret the constitution and tell us what the founders meant. She has no idea what the founders meant. None of the atheists have any idea what the founders meant because the vast majority of the founders were Christians and they were taking what they put into these founding documents directly from the Bible. Most people around the country don't know much about the Bible. If you went out on the street and tried to get people to, to uh, tell you the amount of verses they know out of the Bible, it's not many, which is shameful to begin with. But the people who are actually trying to tell us what the founders meant and what the framework was, and they don't know anything about the Bible when the Bible is where it was taken, we're in serious trouble. I think you make a, a great, marvelous point. Uh, and, and that will lead into or shape some of the conversation we have with Anthony and Bobby here in a minute, B because these were flawed people that knew they were flawed, and that's why they relied on the Bible. And, and again, that, that's like, that's every Christian or every authentic Christian or anybody trying to be an authentic Christian recognizes that they're flawed and that's why they're leaning into a biblical worldview to correct their flaws or to combat their flaws. And so I, I get these atheists and uh, or Satanists or, or whatever, these agnostics or whatever, they lean into themselves to correct their flaws. Good luck, good luck. I, I've, I've tried that for 30 years, trying to combat my weight problem, lean into me. I've never had consistent success until I started really praying about it and really seeking, like what does God think I should eat? And that's why I eat so many raw green vegetables and stuff. And, I, and I, I've always wanted to, but it took like really leaning into faith to get me to do it consistently because I'm just not capable. And I try to tell people, uh, people, some, uh, I had someone email me today or tweet at me today, you know, about you've changed and, you know, I used to like you and now you're just a right wing Christian, blah, 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 and, and I really authentically say to these people, anything you have ever liked about me, anything, it's because of God, it's not me. 
The, the good things that you liked about me, I trust me, they come from my Christian upbringing. If left to me, I'm a terrible person. I can tell you the terrible things I've done leaning into me. So, uh, Shamika, I'm gonna give you a final thought. I don't know if you had an extra thought or comment you wanted to sneak in, uh, but I'll let you wrap this up. I would just say growing up, I always heard this saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans. I think our problem as Americans, we haven't had that same sentiment. If you don't believe in the Bible, if you don't believe in the fact that our our forefathers put documents in place that were based on biblical principles, you need to be silent here in America. We've had open borders and let people just come in and bring whatever theories and thoughts that they want to bring. And now we're in trouble. We need to to now stand on the founding father's principles and not move, not budge, be like trees planted by the water. So if in America, do as the Americans, which is be one nation under God, period. Uh, Thank you, Shamika. Uh, That's a good segue uh, to tell you guys about my good friends at Good Ranchers. Uh, Good Ranchers is here to solve your meat problems. 85% of the meat sold at the local grocery stores comes from overseas, but with Good Ranchers, you get the best food from farms that are 100% American. They provide the highest quality grass-fed and grain-finished beef and chicken. Grocery stores simply cannot compete with the taste of Good Ranchers, so stop waiting around and go to goodranchers.com fearless today. Subscribe now to combat inflation and lock in your price. For a limited time, you'll get a $30 discount on prime steaks and better than organic chicken. Good Ranchers takes the guesswork out of the grocery store by sourcing everything from local farms and shipping it to your door. Visit goodranchers.com fearless and use my promo code fearless to get $30 off your box of 100% American meat. Good Ranchers, American meat delivered. That's the one thing I forgot to do. I, when I ordered my mother a bunch of Good Ranchers, I didn't punch in my own promo code. You guys owe me $30, but I don't, I'll order some more. My mo- that's where I'm going. To- My mother's so thrilled with me. She can't wait to cook me some good ranchers uh, when I get to Indianapolis this weekend. All right. Uh, we're going to talk with Aaron Siberian. Uh, he wrote a tremendous article on his Substack, on Barry Weiss's Substack, about the legal system. It kind of segues with our conversation we just had. All that and more next. What's up, Bunks? Hey, what's up, Butter? How you doing, man? What you popping off? Oh, man, you know how I do, man. I'm sitting up and got this good ranch jumping off. You know how I do, what man. Are those burgers? Burgers? <laughs> them, is, them is good, old-fashioned American Wagyu steak burgers. Boy, you better watch your mouth. Hey, man, let me tell you something. Something about this good ranch is I don't know. This good ranch is put a song in my heart. Make me want to sing. You yeah, know what I'm kinda saying? Kind of make it look like rock stars out here with this grill. What we should do, we ought to come up with a little song, a little something. Pitch to the good ranchers, people. See if we can come up what with something. What you thinking, man? What kind of song? I don't know, man. We, we ought to come up with a little jingle or something, man. Something to put a little, something to, I don't know, man. Maybe something like, um...
me got the grill on lockdown I'll fire it up so you better get ready now We got the party started I bet you're getting hungry Black Angus bone in the ribeyes, New York strips, and top sirloins. Even got the Wagyu chicken and seafood. Cause everything we do is born raised in American heartland. We're cutting costs cause we're cutting out the middleman. Ship fresh to you, hand trim, hand cut, that's what we do. Got a lot of good folks all around this country. Working their jobs, coming home hungry. And we guarantee. Only the best for your family, yeah. We bring the meat, you make the memories. Good ranchers, good ranchers, good ranchers. We're good ranchers. Uncle Jimmy! Uncle Jimmy! <laughs> All right, welcome back. Uh, we're going to continue our conversation about the legal system and the law. We're going we had been talking about uh, Supreme Court Justice nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson, uh, but there was an article um, on a substack, Barry Weiss's substack, I think Common Sense, a writer named Arian Siberian wrote an article about uh, the legal system and how it's being basically taken over and captured by the woke left, and it's a marvelous piece of journalism. It's an awesome, important piece of journalism that I suggest everyone go read. Uh, we're gonna unpack it a little bit here with the author, uh, Aaron, uh, welcome to the show. And, and you start your article talking about a lawyer who, uh, well-respected liberal lawyer, who made the mistake of representing Harvey Weinstein and being ostracized. And that was kind of the jumping off point that you made of like, this is what's going on in our legal system. The whole act of the adversarial legal system and quoting directly from your story, the adversarial legal system in which both sides of a dispute are represented vigorously by attorneys with a vested interest in winning is at the heart of the American constitutional order. Since time immemorial, law schools have tried to prepare their students to take part in that system. Uh, that's starting to fall apart. Uh, explain. Well, first of all, Jason, thank you very much for having me. Um, essentially, what has happened is that the uh, the hypersensoriousness on college campuses, the drive for moral purity. Um, the hypersensitivities around race and gender and identity and the prioritization of those things above norms like, say, due process and the presumption of innocence. All of that, when, when the students who were protesting in around 2015, when they graduated, uh, they didn't just grow up and grow out of it. Some of them went to law school and then some of them graduated law school. And now they're entering law firms, they're entering courts, they're entering government agencies, and all of these uh, values that we were saying were illiberal back in 2015 are now uh, seeping into the legal system itself and to the institutions that determine what law is and how it is practiced. Um, so effectively, you know, 
people like to complain about, say, Title IX campus kangaroo courts or things like that. But it's not just on campus. Um, it's pretty soon going to be um, a good number of the legal institutions in the United States, including some of the most powerful legal institutions. Well, you go on to make a point about, and I'm quoting here directly, at a Boston College Law School this semester, a constitutional law professor asked students, and this is what really caught my attention because we talk about this a lot on the show, the, the, the professor asked, who does not think we should scrap the Constitution? According to a student in the class, not a single person raised their hand. Are kids in law school think it's okay to scrap the Constitution? That scares me tremendously. Yeah, and I think what's important to see here is that, you know, I highly doubt that everyone in that class thinks we should scrap the Constitution. The reason nobody raised their hand is because they know that there is a kind of taboo against saying anything good about the Constitution. They know that if they stick up for it, they will be derided as racist and sexist. And so, of course, they don't. Um, and, you know, you might think, well, all right, they they are self-censoring, but they're st they still probably mostly have, you know, reasonable views. How big a deal is this? Well, the problem is that if everyone is afraid to stick up for the Constitution because they're going to be called racist and sexist, you know, that's still going to affect what the norms are in uh, the legal system. So it doesn't really matter if the majority of lawyers privately think, yeah, all this stuff is kind of silly because they're terrified to actually act on that belief. Um, and so the result, of course, is that the craziest and most illiberal voices end up winning out and dominating law firms. Um, and just, you know, a, a concrete example of how this works, you mentioned at the beginning the, the example of the lawyer who was accosted for defending Harvey Weinstein. You know, people know that that kind of thing happens. And so what law firms have started to do more frequently than they used to is just not take controversial cases. And obviously, there's always been some, you know, law firms will debate what they should take. It's not like this censorship is totally new, but the scope and and severity of it has clearly expanded. And so, you know, I, I there's a story in my piece about a, a First Amendment lawyer turning being forced to turn down a client with very far right views because the firm uh, tells the lawyer, you know, well, we think that uh, any association with this guy is going to hurt business. Um, we just don't want that. Got, you know, we don't want to be involved in that. So, you know, then First Amendment cases like that off the table, religious liberty cases off the table. Um, there's all these forces, both from within the firm and then also from public pressure that have steadily uh, constricted law firms' willingness and even arguably financial ability to take controversial cases because, after all, if all your other clients protest you for taking on, say, Harvey Weinstein, you're going to lose business. So, you, you know, you, you really have no choice. Um, but that result is that there is a growing kind of imbalance of power in the legal system where certain causes and clients are just off the table. And as that keeps going and gets more intense, it's going to erode the adversarial character on which the entire project of the American liberal legal order rests. 
Well, the, the thing I loved about your article, it's chock full of great information and insight, great reporting, but you also clearly connect the dots and, and you make the point through your reporting and other voices, this isn't your opinion, this is the opinion of lawyers. Without representation, you don't have rights. If there's no lawyer to defend your rights, you uh, to represent you and defend your rights, you don't have rights. And that's why this is so critical and important because what we're really doing is empowering the court of public opinion over the actual court. And so it's like, if we think someone's guilty, well, they don't deserve representation. Well, how many, how many examples do we need of where we think someone's guilty, but really they're not? And, and really there are mitigating factors that need to be represented. And so th this, your article is just so important because we're talking about limiting, diminishing the rights that we, many of us, all of us have somewhat taken for granted. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, a, a good example of where this adversarial system is, is good and where the absence of it can be really bad is that there was a case um, a few years ago in Italy, uh, the Amanda Knox case. Um, and Italy, for, for context, they don't really have an adversarial legal system in the same way we do. Um, you know, the judges play a role in the fact finding. There is not quite the same kind of adversarial combat between defense and prosecution. And the problem with that is it means that if the people, mainly the judges and the prosecutors who are responsible for finding all the facts, if they're biased, then the outcome, it's kind of sealed from the beginning. Um, whereas in the US system, you know, because both sides have more of a say and in, in, in participate in the fact-finding process and, you know, just have more say in every part of the trial, there's more opportunities to kind of correct bias. Um, and in the Amanda Knox case, she was accused of, of killing her roommate, um, and she didn't. And the Italian, highest Italian court later basically ruled she didn't. Um, but because sort of the Italian legal system didn't have all these uh, checks and balances that we do, uh, this woman actually ended up spending quite a few years in jail uh, for a crime she didn't commit. And so, you know, if you get to the point in the United States where unpopular people just don't get access to good legal representation um, or where the, the very idea of an adversarial trial system is seen as um, racist somehow, you're going to have more examples like that, presumably, where uh, actually innocent people do spend time in jail. Um, and, you know, I, I would think that people, especially on the progressive left, frankly, uh, would be worried about that. Well, justice is supposed to be blind. And uh, I uh, think a lot of these activists are taking the blinders off justice. And I thought you made a marvelous point by telling the story of Montez Lee Jr., uh, a rioter that was labeled a protester who help burn anyway tell I don't want you tell the Montez Lee story and how this pursuit of racial justice actually gets in the way of actual justice yeah so this guy was at a Black Lives Matter protest but really riot in Minneapolis in 2020 
um, and he breaks into a pawn shop. Uh, he douses it in kerosene and sets it on fire and burns to the ground. Unbeknownst to him, um, there is a 30-year-old father of five inside who dies of his injuries um, from smoke um, inhalation. So this guy obviously goes to trial, um, and under federal sentencing guidelines, he should have gotten something like 20 years. Um, but the prosecutor, the prosecutor, to be clear, not the defense, the prosecutor, only asked for 12 years because this guy, they argued, believed that he was engaging in the language of the unheard, believed that his cause was righteous. And the prosecution was arguing that should be like a mitigating factor. And the judge uh, appeared to buy that argument because she only gave him 10 years. Um, and of course, taking into account someone's intent on its own is not an issue, right? We, we care if someone did something deliberately or accidentally, that's, that's not the issue. The issue is that it seems pretty clear that they weren't just taking into account whether he intended to kill somebody. And I mean, he didn't, he didn't know someone was inside, but they were also taking into account, it seemed his political beliefs and whether um, they thought that this was a good cause that he was participating in. Um, and of course, you know, imagine if someone burned down or bombed an abortion clinic and then say a right wing judge, you know, was like, well, you did kill someone in the abortion clinic. That was bad. On the other hand, you really believe that, you know, you were you were, you know, engage it like helping the lives of the unborn. So we'll go easy on you. I mean, no one, no one in the media or on the left would have any patience for this argument um, or if someone said, well, you know, yes. You, you stormed the Capitol on January 6th and someone got hurt, but like you believe the election was still, no. I mean, uh, of course we're not gonna take those sorts of political beliefs into account. Yet, if it's for racial justice, oh, well then suddenly someone's, uh, someone's not just, you know, narrow motives in the sense of whether they meant to kill someone, but their political motives, suddenly that becomes like an exonerating factor. Um, and that's pretty concerning. It's very concerning, and and again, I'm just. This was a masterpiece. I I hope that, and not that you probably don't even care, but I hope that you put this up for awards. Uh, I doubt it will get any because the <laughs> people were complaining about or woke, and maybe we'll disagree with everything uh, that's in here. But it's a masterpiece because you you ended with painting a very clear picture like, hey, a lot of this that we're trying here in America, particularly the racial justice aspect, uh, it's been done in South Africa. And, and it has created chaos and violence and division and unemployment. You talk about the Competition Act that I think uh, the ANC installed in the mid 1990s. And I think now South Africa is like at 44% unemployment. Yeah. We've already, the direction we're headed, another country has already gone down this direction and it has failed unbelievably. Yeah, correct. And, and so the, the background is that South Africa has a number of race conscious laws, including race conscious antitrust laws, which govern um, what businesses can merge and sort of the, the distribution of ownership among corporations. Um, and what they do in South Africa is, it, businesses have to be a certain percent 
black-owned, and this was to address the legacy of apartheid. The problem is that um, when you do that, it leads to all sorts of corruption and cronyism, and the people who end up owning the businesses under this law are often very well connected to the ruling party. Um, that all kind of spirals into very high unemployment, as you said, uh, into a sense of disenfranchisement on the part of the whole population. And I would emphasize it's not like the unemployment is just concentrated among white people. In fact, it's probably worse among black people still. So, so these policies designed to promote racial equity in South Africa ended up basically just hurting everybody. Um, and then comes along a U.S. antitrust official named Rebecca Slaughter, who says on Twitter, oh, antitrust law, Kennan should be anti-racist. By the way, there's precedent for doing this. South Africa, for example, and just sort of credulously cites the laws in South Africa that many scholars, including many black political economists in South Africa, have said are really driving this country's economy into the ground and corroding its social fabric. Um, and, you know, the Federal Trade Commission has a lot of power over the U.S. economy. So that's pretty scary. Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I hope everybody goes and reads your work. Uh, the best journalism is actually being done on Substack, not in the alleged papers of record around the country. Uh, just awesome job with this story and continued success. Uh, God bless you and Bari Weiss. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. TJ, yeah, um, particularly the, the whole South Africa thing at the end. And it, it's like we have this myth going on or this belief in America that the cure to past injustice is future injustice. Mm and that we can somehow correct racism by being racist towards white people. And if you just look at South Africa, it doesn't work. It, it just promotes more injustice and ends up harming everybody, black and white. And I, I think the people promoting this are smart enough to know it. Uh, the, the people following along with it I don't know if they're smart enough to know it, but they need to get informed and just look around the world. They're, you know, my mother's always big on saying there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new but the doers, basically. And so pretty much everything that people we're trying to do has already been done someplace else. And you can see the results of it. And, and this, this whole racial justice by racism initiative, it's been done. It doesn't work. Yes, that's the book of Ecclesiastes. All of it, it's explained everything you just said. It's the same idea with socialism. Socialism, well, it just hasn't been tried properly yet. I haven't tried it, is what they're saying. And when I try it, I will, as uh, Jordan B. Peterson likes to say, I will usher in the utopia. I'll be the one to do it. And it turns out you will not. Uh, you, said, you said you did not think that, uh, you thought that the people pushing this were smarter than that. I think when you surround yourself with yes men, this is what Vladimir Putin has done and many of the top dictators, you become convinced that you're right and that you say, no, I, again, I will usher in the utopia and everybody around you says yes. And it's like the Boston College Law School. There's everybody's too cowardice to raise their hand and say, that doesn't make sense. And so if nobody's pushing against you at all, at some point you're gonna be convinced that you are right. You just keep saying it until you're convinced you are. 
there is a, um, uh, when they, uh, you go through uh, in jails and things like that and people who have basically gone psychotic, they go through a lie detector test and they are so convinced that they're right because they've said it so many times that the, the reality, they still pass the lie detector test. They've still convinced themselves that they're exactly right and they're the ones that are going to do it and there's nobody pushing against them, which the name of this show is Fearless. You're gonna have to show me where cowardice has ever produced a good result in every kid who's sitting in that Boston College Law School is a coward for not raising their hand and saying, this is the longest running document in the history of the world. You're gonna have to, you're going to have to offer me a little bit more than just, we should scrap it, right? <laughs> this reminds me of, you know, I've had some good girlfriends in my life because no matter how many times I tell them I'm Denzel Washington's twin brother, they all say no. They, no, they never <laughs> believe me, so. The truth hurts, but it, it, it can sober you up, bring you back to reality. All right, uh, go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Pastor Bobby Poster, Anthony Tennessee Harmony. Time for some uh, Tennessee harmony, uh, and we're going to do it a little different. It won't just be me, Anthony, and Bobby. Uh, TJ Moe is going to sit in with us because TJ is actually the driver of uh, today's discussion. He reached out to me this week about some questions he wanted to ask uh, Anthony and Bobby, and it stems from, uh, you know, we talked about the Eli Mistal and his comments on The View about uh, the Constitution being trash because the people that wrote it were trash. And so let, let's play the Eli Mistel clip and then I'm gonna kind of turn it over to TJ and you can ask your questions and we can engage in a discussion. Uh, let's play the clip. So are you arguing for throwing out the Constitution? Should the Constitution be thrown out? What do we do? Is it a living document is it a, or is it a sacred document? It's certainly not sacred, all right? Let's start there. <laughs> the Constitution is kind of trash. Now, let's just, again, let's just talk as adults for a second. What did you say? It's what? It's kind of trash. Trash. It was, it was written by slavers and colonists and white people who were willing to make deals with slavers and colonists. They didn't ask anybody to look like me what they thought about the Constitution. Mm -hmm. They didn't say, oh, Jim, come over here. What do you think about this old Constitution? Yeah. Well, Massa, I sure don't like how you sell my children. <laughs> um, but I gotta say, Massa, this King George, he needs to be stopped. Yeah. My, my grandpappy used to say, ain't no taxation without representation for Massa. Like, that's not what happened, <laughs> okay. right? This document was written without the consent of black and brown people in this country and without the consent of women in this country. And I say if that, that if that is the starting point, mm -hmm. the very least we can do is ignore what those slavers and colonists and misogynists thought and interpret the Constitution in a way that makes sense for our modern world. That mm. Mm. Uh... TJ, so what do you want to ask out of that? So my first thought when I saw that was, I am, I've been taught the Bible and read the Bible since I was a kid. I'm 31 years old, and so my earliest memories are sitting in Sunday school class. And one of the things that I was always taught in 
in Sunday school and, and since then throughout is that the Bible is full of flawed people. And one of the, I had a pastor one time tell me, about a third of the Bible is written by murderers. And so I have always, one of the things that they taught us was disregard the person delivering the message, honor the message, specifically it comes from God. And so I, I guess my question to you would be, how do Christians square these two things where you'd say, hey, read the Bible and the Bible's good and don't worry about what the, the messenger is in the Bible, but then turn around and only look at the messenger in the United States Constitution. Okay, I'll jump in first. Uh, your pastor had some wisdom there because uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, had, uh, was sitting there when Stephen was stoned before he was actually converted to Jesus. So he wrote a bunch of the New Testament. Probably 10% of the Bible is about King David, who was also uh, an adulterer and a murderer. And so I think he was making some good points there. Um, and so it really gets to the question of how do we know that the Bible is the word of God if it's using, if God was using these kinds of people? And yet scripture itself in 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about how God spoke through these men mm -hmm. as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit and so that they wrote down the word of God as God intended. But you know, it's true today. If, if we were to go around this room and say, can God use Jason Woodlock? Look at all the things that he's done. Can God use Bobby Harrington? If you only knew the things that he had done. And the truth is that God can and God does, but he doesn't pick perfect people because there aren't perfect people to do God's work and for God to be used to do things like writing scripture. You know, I'll say this. I think sometimes the disconnect comes in even how we handle that word inspiration. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, he says that all scripture is God breathed. Now, biblically, that word inspiration means God breathed or as Bobby said, God spoke, God directed. How we often look at the word inspire, we often look at it as motivated by. So, you know, Jason goes on a weight loss program and I said, man, I got to get myself together. He inspired me, but that's different from a biblical inspiration. So sometimes people get hung up there. But what I do, you know, stand completely in agreement with is what Bobby just pointed out. God, I tweeted this just the other day. God does not call us by our qualifications. He calls us by his qualifications. Everybody that he's called outside of Jesus is unqualified. We're, we're flesh. We're, you know, but he's qualified and he, he's the one that gets all the glory. So whenever we look at the scripture, uh, you're right. Sometimes people look at it and say, well, man, well, how can I trust what X, Y, Z says? I'm not looking directly at them. I'm looking at the one that called him and that's God. I'd like to add something too, if, if I can get right to the to the clip that we just saw, uh, where the point is made that, you know, some of these people who wrote the Constitution were slaveholders and things like that. I just want to say that that's a really, if you think that men from their biases just kind of sat down and wrote the U.S. Constitution, that's not very good history, mm. and it's not a very ba good background to understand it. 
And uh, I, I also think that what he's doing is, because I've been reading his tweets, knowing that we're going to talk about him today. I mean, he's a sold-out Marxist, and he's using his Marxist lens to judge the Bible and to judge our culture today. And he's importing an entirely different philosophy than the philosophy of the people who wrote the Constitution. Let me just say it this way. Um, about a year ago, I was in Colorado, and uh, I was walking down the corridor at the airport, and I noticed this Abraham Lincoln statement that said, you know, united we stand, divided we fall. And that's actually based on what Jesus said when he said that a house divided against itself mm -hmm. cannot stand. And what's happening right now is, is people like Eli are sowing division because he's importing and imposing, as do people on the radical left, he, they're importing and imposing a false value system that doesn't fit the U.S. Constitution, Marxism, and then they're trying to create uh, chaos and division. And boy, the, you talk about Tennessee Harmony, the opposite of Tennessee Harmony is if you give them their way in our culture, because it's gonna create division and hatred, because everything's about who's being oppressed and who are the oppressors, and let's cause division and, and conflict, because everywhere Marxism has been adopted, it's led to division and hatred and the breakdown of society. I, I got a simple take in terms, and I've been saying this since I was in college, accept the truth from wherever it comes. Mm. And, and so it's, I'm the most overweight person here, but if I say, Raw green vegetables are healthy and will help you heal, help you lose weight, blah, blah, blah. It can't be discounted because I'm overweight and because I haven't followed my own prescription. Mm -hmm. It is the truth. And so I just have to accept it. And so I don't want to distract from this conversation, but I do think it's, it's that mentality that I have is where some people justify, and I don't want to distract by making this comment, but it's a natural comment to make based off what I just said. I think people are too caught up in the individuals and not what they're saying, and that there are people who are not caught up in the individuals, and that's why they're comfortable supporting Donald Trump, is because they feel like he's espousing truth He's mm -hmm. not someone they like, not, they don't like the way he carries himself, but they respect the truth that he's espousing. And I've been arguing for the last five or six years, the solution to Donald Trump is for more people to tell the truth. Yeah. And if more people stand on truth and tell the truth, and, and again, I I've, was Delano and I, I think either this week or it was last week, had the conversation about, uh, Ron DeSantis and why he would be a better presidential candidate uh, than Trump. And it's because he's speaking the truth without all the extra garbage that distracts from his truth. And so I know that me losing weight will strengthen my espousal of truth as it relates to almost every topic, mm -hmm. but particularly if I'm talking to someone about diet and exercise, if I'm 220 pounds rather than 310 pounds, people will hear me mm -hmm. and accept my truth. 
and 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 so I think for Eli and others um, to to not be able to because again he he said the Constitution is trash, <laughs> and then his explanation was the writers were trash. He didn't deal with the Constitution. Right. He didn't cite it. Well, well, give me these examples of of what's trash in the Constitution. What's trash in the Declaration of Independence? He went at the people uh, that wrote it, and I, I think that's just a distraction. And, and again, it goes to Bobby's much larger point. It's a tactic of Marxists, create confusion. Well, he's arguing uh, from a Marxist philosophical foundation against the Constitution, which was really ba based on a, a Judeo-Christian foundation. By the way, did you notice how I I did, you, you got it proper. <laughs> but here's one thing you have to, you have to do, and I, I make it a point, Trot, when I talk about Marxism, I'm there are so many people, Yeah. they don't even, they don't, Marxism, again, we haven't really explained it in school. It's not like saying Green Bay Packers, oh, I know what you're talking about, you're talking yeah, about right. a football team. Right. And right. so Marxism, as TJ talked about earlier, if you understand Karl Marx and, and just, you can do the research yourself, but Marxism and communism are hostile to religion because if you look for God, they don't want you looking for God as the higher power, they want you to think man is the highest power and government is the highest power. One, one of the ways that I found it helpful to talk about it is that if somebody comes with a lens that people are either the oppressed or the oppressor, that that's the lens by which they look at everything, that's Marxism. I, I, you're accurate. I'm not sure if that's the most effective because some people do look at the world as oppressor or oppressed. We're, what, what we're trying to do here, all of us, I think, I'm trying to uh, talk to people who have religious beliefs and awaken them to the fact like, hey, Marxism is against Jesus mm -hmm. and Christianity. That's why you need to be afraid of it. Communist governments put in laws to limit religious freedom. And, and again, if, like, if you understand America's history and, and what its founding was about religious freedom and the Constitution, the Bill of Rights protects all of that. And, and that in communist countries, like when Russia was, you know, really communist and back in the day, they limited and opposed Christianity and religion. Jason, help me with this then, because I don't think that there's hardly anybody that I know right now advocating that we become communists, except for maybe some really extreme people. But the average person in America is not going to say, I want to become communist. But they're adopting that framework of, oppressed and oppressors. Men oppress women. White people oppress uh, people who are not white people. Uh, and and uh, uh, the you're, dominant- You're right, Bob, but what I, the argument I'm making is you're talking uh, algebra when right. people need to understand two plus two equals four before they're ever willing to get wrap their minds around oppressor versus oppressor. They have to have a fundamental understanding. If you believe in God, Marxism, socialism, communism, 
These are all gateway drugs to being an atheist. <laughs> That's all they are. And so there's a lot of people smoking weed that never think they'll do heroin. That's statistics show <laughs> you start smoking weed or you start drinking alcohol. Eventually. Here's, let yeah. me just tell you as a pastor my frustration right now. Yeah. My frustration is cultural Marxism is taking over the way everybody thinks. They don't know that, but they know the idea of, yeah, we got to be for women's rights. Yeah, we got to be for LGBTQ rights. Yeah, we got to advocate for transgender people. And if you ask them, do you know that that's cultural Marxism? They'll go, what are you talking about? That's, right. that's, that's over my head. Right. And I'm just saying somehow at some way we've got to advocate for the truth of Jesus. But there are a lot of people like the judge uh, that's right now before the country to be appointed, who she claims to be a Christian, but she's also bought into cultural Marxism. And I bet she can't tell you the difference. In fact, she was asked about critical theory and she said, I don't know that much about it after having advocated for critical race theory. Bob, as a pastor, I'm just telling you, we got to think harder. Bob. Yes. The, the, today's conversations, she can't define what a, a woman is or right. says she can't. But why can't she? No, no, no. Because she, she's lying. <laughs> so you, people don't tell. But if, she's lying because she's bought into the alternative philosophy. You're right. But I'm just saying she's just lying. She knows what Marxism is. She knows what critical race theory is. Again, if, if, if every day I came in here and told you I weighed 270 pounds, you, well, Jason's a liar. And so I would be suspicious of all the other things that I say because I'm prone to lying. And I, I, I think she's prone to lying. If you can't define what a woman is. Or and, when life And begins. you've had kids. She's birthed, I think, two kids. And she don't know what a woman is. She don't know her husband can't birth two kids. You know, I, anyway. I, I'm, you don't <laughs> no, I like anymore. where the conversation went. There, there is one other. I will say that, that Eli's take seems quite illogical if you spend any time thinking about it, aside from where you said, look, take truth from wherever it comes. The way I have always read the Bible, David has been one of my very favorite uh, figures to follow in the Bible because he was a humble beginning, little shepherd boy, slayed a giant, uh, slayed a giant became the greatest king in Israel's history. Mm -hmm. He was an adulterer and a murderer. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a murderer. And God said that is a man after his own heart. Now, now, God said that about David, just to get make sure we're being accurate here. God said that he was a man after his own heart before he did those things, and he became a king before he did those things. Mm -hmm. Understood, understood. What I'm trying to get at is that the, the entirety of David, God still used a man sure. who did horrible things. And, and so to me, I don't dismiss David as a horrible person and say, well, he's not, he's not anointed anymore. Samuel didn't just go get him. I say, that's encouraging to me. Yeah. If a guy that flawed can be used by God, so can I. Yeah. If a guy that flawed by God, so can some guys who own some slaves to, to write a constitution that's the longest uh, working document in our history. Like those guys, when specifically they tell us about 34% of those uh, citations were from the Bible. Like if you're writing a document based on the Bible, I'm not going to question the guys who just transferred it from one great document to the next. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Jason, what was that quote that you said uh, that you've always said, take truth? How do you accept the truth from wherever it comes? OK, all truths. God, that's <clears throat> that's that's a good statement. And I understand its context. I've heard something similar from my granny. And I remember talking with her about that's good. 
until in my line of work, like our line of work, take, for instance, uh, your, your minister in uh, Oklahoma. You love his messages, love his sermons, love his books, and his books were written at, at a certain time. If tomorrow it's announced that, you know, he has a sex dungeon or something, he's got two or three love kids, you're at the maturity state to be able to understand Although the individual's flawed, the message was good. The same would happen for us. If somebody found out tomorrow that I had that, uh, mature individuals could look to that to see, oh, okay, but the majority of the folk at my church or most churches, uh, I, got a, I got a problem with that because, because it gives influence to the things that we share. So we, when you bring up David, for example, there were people when Paul began preaching that had they, they had issues rejecting anything that he said because or they rejected anything he said because the last few years that we've heard about this guy who was Saul is that he's going around killing folk. So when he would come to town to preach, the first group of folk that he had to really encounter were those who were taken aback because of his influence. I understand the, the extremist, and, and I would say that person's uh, perspective is extreme, say the Constitution is trash, okay. But I know some people who look at folk through that context. So, so when you made the analogy, and this was while you were talking about it, it just hit me. You could write a book based off of your athletic knowledge. I mean, you played sports, you know good dieting, you know, good exercise. You could write a book that is sound truth on diet, exercise, metabolism, etc. But you mentioned it would be received differently if you were in shape. Yes. So so I say I know, you know, I, what we really need to do. And I think that's where we're coming to. We really need to mature the hearts of mankind only by the word of God to be able to look at flawed individuals. You know, we face it, I, at least I do, in, in Bible class, I was looking at our list that we had. Um, when you teach something about Rahab to a younger generation, they're gonna catch on to, wait, but she lied. Like they're gonna catch that, but wait, she was, or they may ask, well, what is a harlot? What is a prostitute? And you have to mature them in the lesson to get to it's not so much about her, her lifestyle, her sin. Look at what God does in the greater concept. But but there are people that I, I'm, I'm just looking at. I, I don't want to paint with a broad brush people that struggle with the founders because, yeah, you know, slavery was there. It was a bane. We all agree there and mix those people up with the folk who are trying to change the nation. I, I know there's a whole dynamic of folk. I don't agree the Constitution is trash. I don't agree with any of that kind of stuff. But then there are those who may look at it to say, like they would with Paul. Man, Paul is speaking these great truths. He's preaching this good gospel. But man, he killed folk. Like, how did you do that, Paul? How did you, how did you reconcile that with God's word? And it took him some time. And so I would say that that's why we need to be in love with the truth. Amen. Yeah. And not the speaker. And so right. I, I just heard T 
TJ said, you revere David. And mm-hmm. it was literally going to cause me to ask you all, a question. Yeah. should we revere David? Oh, sure, sure. For, for what God, because even God with, with somebody like David, what I like about it, David came to a point to where he begs God, man, forgive me for this. At the time that he committed the sin with Bathsheba, had her husband killed, David still didn't come to full conviction of his sin. His best friend, Nathan, has to come to him and say, man, David, imagine he tells a parable about a man who had killed his neighbor's sheep. And David gets enraged at that person. When he hears about that person, he says, that man ought to be killed. And Nathan says, you're that man. Mm. And so when David is now convicted to say, oh, wow, I messed up. Then he goes to God and begs. So, yeah, the whole narrative of the flaw, the sin, the filth, the murder. And then David comes to God to say, hey, God, I repent of my sin. Please blot out my iniquity. Absolute. God used all of that. We need to. He was the greatest king. They're talking about son of David when Jesus shows up. So, yeah, we should want to add something that is important part of this conversation. For your viewers and for our conversation, God uh, forgave David his sins. Amen. But there were consequences. And God, basically from that point forward, David lived a life of seeing his whole family fractured and difficulty. And God allowed that to happen as a consequence of David sinning with Bathsheba and killing her husband. I want to just, but my finishing point to that question oh, was. I'm sorry. No, I, I was, it was a great answer. But should we de- revere David or should we revere the truths that he revealed? So let me, let me just address this because this is a thing that's common right now in churches where pastors are falling and, and uh, leaders are falling. Um, when people first come to their faith, this is not always true, but typically true. When people first come to faith, they have trouble delineating the the people who are leaders who are helping them with their faith, just like children with their parents, a young child with her parents think their parents are perfect. And uh, one of the things that every child goes through as you get older is the realization no parents are perfect. Mm. But what happens with, we call them spiritual infants and children. Mm -hmm. Spiritual infants and children are the most susceptible to their spiritual parents falling down into sin. And for many of them, it's tragic. So, yes, uh, we don't want people to depend on the preachers and the leaders. But at the same time, we preachers and leaders better realize that the lives we live, there's a lot of people looking to us who don't have the maturity to delineate between us and our frailty and the message we speak. He said it better than I did. (laughs) We got to wrap up. I want to end on a just a personal note uh, as it relates to all this we've been talking about is is. My best friends, particularly my best friends from college. and I'm even going to throw my mother into this. The people that know me best. Have the hardest time. Processing who I've become. So when you spend so much time known among your friends, it's like, <laughs> that's the social animal. 
Oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you need a bachelor party thrown? Jason Whitlock, he the man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so now they see me now, <laughs> and these are my best friends. These guys love me like brothers. And, and they're happy for me, but they still like behind my back or, or even in jokes, <laughs> like, come on, they'll send me pictures of things we used to do or did or whatever. And, and so it, 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 it is, you know, I, my, my mother for a long time like struggled like, wow, Jason's quoting Bible scripture, Jason's sending me uh, church sermons, Jason, blah, 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 Jason, it, it's taken some years for her to like accept and like fully buy in, like, well, this is real. Mm-hmm. And, and so there is a consequence to sin and, and in terms of, you know, getting into your life's mission. And again, and it, I got no excuse. I was raised in the church. Grandmother had a great influence. And there was a lot of good things I did over the course of my life, but I did not represent my Christianity well uh, for a lot of years. And I've, I'm still paying a price for that. Uh, and so th- there is a heavy burden on ministers. And, and I am, uh, I'm just a, I'm a different person. I get why most people in church, the preacher falls and they think the whole church fell. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's the preacher fell. He's just a human. He's just a guy, you know. Wow, <laughs> them truths, that. <laughs> them true. I mean, literally, that is, yeah. that's yeah. my mentality. And so. I'm not sure, and I'll have to do more thinking, but I don't know if I revere David or anybody. I do love the truth that they yeah, revealed yeah. and how well, you, that truth inspired me, but, Actually, what, what it is is you love Jesus Christ. Yeah. And that you're trying to honor him. And by the way, I think the more we start talking about Jesus and focusing people on Jesus, that because Christianity means everything and and means everything and anything and ultimately, unfortunately, not as much as when what you're doing, Jason, and we're so proud of you, is you're, you're trying to follow Jesus. Well, I hope. Uh, and because I screwed up at the beginning, uh, you guys uh, bless this conversation and play tomorrow, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Let's play us out. All right. Uh, God, I just thank you for the opportunity to speak about Jesus. I thank you for Jason's fearlessness. And I pray, God, please lead Jason, lead the show, lead us, that we would really honor you and help people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. We are living, get back. We are receiving all the seed when we all want to be free. We want freedom. I just want, I want to be. I just want, I want to be. I just want, I want to be. I just want.